Dotnet Rocks, episode 1086, with guest Evelina Gabashova. Recorded Monday, January 5th, 2015. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And we're here for an hour or so with you, for you. You're the reason we're here. If it wasn't for you, we'd have to get real jobs. That's right. So please don't stop listening to our show. And while you're at it, tell other people about it, because that's (laughs) always a good thing. It's a good thing. Keeps us going. And you'll be a hero, and we'll get more listeners. So there you go. How are you doing, man? I am well. I get nothing to complain about. Uh, over the, you know, I, I avoid video games like the plague during the year. Uh, but over Christmas is when I'll actually, you know, actually give myself a little headspace and, and play with something. And usually mm-hmm. it's a story based game. Mm-hmm. Not this time. No. Kerbal Space Program is in beta. What is on that? Steam. It basically is a, a gamified version of developing space technology and flying into space. That is so you, Richard. Totally. I mean, I've been working on, uh, you know, adjusting my uh, uh, azimuth of apiosis. Like, did, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the right ascendant profile for a, for a science uh, satellite that I, I'm thinking i got to wait until the apiosis of the destination orbit is just at the 90-degree point coming up over the horizon and- before I fly the rocket. So I'm going to delay my launch. In order to save fuel on that arc. I'm trying to get the price of the rocket down. You say it's gamified. Do they actually take the data that people generate from this game and use it somehow? I don't think so. It's, I mean, it is a game and it's a very popular game. It's a very extraordinarily geeky game. You, I mean, you build your own rockets and you fly them. But what they've done is they've created missions uh, around things like this is a, this is a contract I've got to fly a space, a science satellite with specific features to a specific orbit. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's totally me. I'm having a great time. Well, in the spirit of geekiness, let us roll the music, the geeky music, because I have a geeky better know framework for you today. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? You know, I rarely find things on Pinterest that I like, but every once in a while, somebody's got a great collection of stuff. And this guy, Steve Spangler on Pinterest, has a page called Geeky Science Fun. Love so if it. you go to tinyurl.com slash geeky science fun, you will find all sorts of great uh, explanations of science uh, topics, things that you can do with your kids, experiments, very cool science experiments that you can do. Um, and even if you don't have kids or you don't you know, have anybody to share this with, you could spend hours here. Guess how I know. <laughs> very, very cool stuff. That's really neat. And he's got about 9,000 followers, and that's quite a lot for a science fun Pinterest board. Yeah, that's no pretty kidding. good. Like I said, it's like, it's, these are all things you could do. You know, the building a self supporting Pringles chip circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, but this is projects you could do with your kids. Yeah. Right? So many possibilities here. And like I say, if you don't have kids or you, you don't have kids nearby, you could just do them yourself. No problem. <laughs> I need to build a self-supporting Kringle chip circle, Absolutely. clearly. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 955, the one we did with Neil Danson, where we talked about, of course, F-sharp. Yep. And this comment comes from Marco, who says, uh, concerning an introduction about neural networks in Visual Studio and .NET, I can mm-hmm. recommend a talk from James McCaffrey. And he provides a link to a Channel 9 video from Build. And James McCaffrey, by the way, speaks at Dev Intersection. Yeah. Almost every time when we can get him. He's for, out of Microsoft Research. Unbelievably smart guy. He's just a fascinating guy. If you, if you don't get to Build or you don't, you can come to Dev Intersection, you can see McCaffrey do his You're thing. You're planning the spring show now, right? I am, right. For, and we're going to be at the Scottsdale Princess in Scottsdale, Arizona, yeah. which I, I haven't been back to in years. I'm really yep. excited about that. Me too. Uh, Uh, Marco goes on to say, uh, he also gives a good introduction about the theory and modelings of neural networks, and it was a great talk, he's talking about our show, using F-sharp to manipulate a XAML tree is a really innovative way to deal with WPF dynamic views. And did you know that F-sharp has risen on the ITOBI index, this is the one that indexes the popularity of languages, from position 69 to 12 in a year? Wow. Wow. So forget about the JavaScript hype. We have a new kid on the block. We have F-sharp hype. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Marco, thanks so much for your comment. I will provide both those links, the Channel 9 link and the iToby link, uh, in the show notes for this show. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And that brings us to our esteemed guest today. Evelina Gabashova is a machine learning researcher working in bioinformatics and statistical genomics. She is developing mathematical models which integrate different types of genomic data to distinguish cancer subtypes. She studied computational statistics and machine learning at University College London, and currently she is finishing her PhD at Cambridge University in MRC Biostatics Unit. Evelina has used many different languages to implement machine learning algorithms, such as MATLAB, R, or Python, and in the end, F-sharp is her favorite, and she uses it frequently for data manipulation and exploratory analysis. She writes a blog on F-sharp in data science at www.evelinag.com. You can also find her on Twitter at E-V-E-L-G-A-B. Welcome, Evelina. Hello. It's great to have you on our show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And I love the real-worldness of this, of using this to <laughs> to cure cancer. You're going to save the world. Yeah, that's the ultimate goal. <laughs> have you been impressed so far with the geekiness of our show? <laughs> well, so far it's been quite funny. <laughs> well, yeah, funny. That's true. We're yeah. always funny. This is a little <laughs> bit extra geeky in terms of the game that Richard mentioned and the uh, the science fun. Yeah, the game sounds actually lovely. Yeah, it's a thing. It's doing yeah, recreational math. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us how you got started in statistics, and then we'll get into your, your project here. Well, uh, I did uh, computer science undergrad, and that was like pure computer science. And then I got interested in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because that's the uh, most fascinating things to do robots and things right. like that. But then uh, I realized there is just so much data around us. And to understand that, we need to use some kind of statistical models or probability models, things like that. So I just got interested in statistics more and more, and I went on to study machine learning. 
And what do you think is the most fascinating thing that you've found in looking at the data in statistics? I mean, wow, of all of it. I mean, your your entire career. Wow, that's quite a hard question. Yeah. I mean, data speaks to you, obviously, more than it does most people who are just looking at a pile of data. What was some of the more fascinating things that you found? Well, I work in bioinformatics, mm -hmm. and I'm not a biologist by any means. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's quite hard to analyze the biological data or to understand what my models tell me. So I can't really speak about my bioinformatics work in Isn't terms of finding the most fascinating thing, because I always need some biologists to look at my results and tell me what the results tell, actually. That is so wild. You don't think of, <laughs> we don't think about that, that you're just focusing on the mechanics of, those, uh, of the statistics. And yeah. actually, how, what that means is totally different to somebody else. Yeah, because, well, my model might tell me that some genes are important during some biological process, mm -hmm. but I don't know all the genes that people study, so I can't interpret that if it makes sense or not. Sure. So I always need some help. So you're, you can find one, correlations, but you don't necessarily yes. know what the correlations are, if the correlations are meaningful. Yes, for example. Interesting. And that's, well... That's a great thing about bioinformatics because you have to collaborate with other people because some people know more about the biological background. Some people know more about the modeling part mm. and they have to collaborate to actually get some insights. I mean, I suppose it's no different for a software developer who's doing a vertical app, you know, in some, in something that they really don't understand the, the, the model. Uh, I'm sorry, not the model, but where their, their real focus is on the, the software and uh, not necessarily how it impacts the uh, you know the business in this case or or the entity that's using it. But um, I'm really interested in in MATLAB and R, and these are the yeah. these are the kind of things that you were using before F Sharp. Tell us just a little bit about those things as a developer. What's interesting about them? Well, I started using MATLAB quite a lot because that was the most uh, widely used language in the machine learning community. And, well, during my university, almost all assignments were done in MATLAB. Right. So that was just a natural thing to do. And I realized from just a software development point of view that some things are very, very nice in MATLAB. For example, matrix manipulations. It's very fast, very easy to do because everything is a matrix in MATLAB. Right. Uh, but from like uh, the point of view of a normal developer, it's very painful to do normal stuff, like, I don't know, string manipulation or right. file manipulation. It's very, very painful. It looks a because lot... Because it's not language designed to do that. Yeah. It looks a lot, to me, like Excel on steroids. <laughs> you know, because you do have matrices and, and spreadsheets and things. Yeah, and then, of yeah. course, you, you branch out from there. What languages yeah. you learn in university? Like, what programming languages were you learning coming into MATLAB? Because you started out with a comsci degree, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, uh, my undergrad was very nice in, like, telling, uh, in showing me all sorts of different languages, actually. Because I think we started, actually, with Pascal. Right. <laughs> And then we progressed onto C, C++, Java, and then we learned Prolog and Haskell, actually. Okay, so and a couple other functional languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I knew Haskell, and that was my first functional programming language, actually. Uh, and then I did some Python and Java, and yeah, that was all. So I got a glimpse into many different programming languages. And what's interesting about R? Well, R is a very nice language for doing certain things. And it has a very good community in statistician, among statisticians and among data scientists. So that means that there are many, many things implemented already in there. And they have unified repositories and it's very easy to download any new library into our environment and use that. And almost anything you need, it's implemented in there. But okay. uh, it has some disadvantages. For example, it's a language designed by statisticians, which yeah. means it's sometimes slightly counterintuitive for people coming from software development. Yeah. And uh, every library has completely different interfaces, and you really need to look at documentation all the time to understand what the different functions are doing. Because parameters are called completely differently, and functions behave completely differently. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've done some work with uh, OpenCV, mm -hmm. which is written by scientists, and the example code, you can definitely tell, wasn't written by software developers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, I think that there's... I read, some, I read some joke on Twitter that's... Uh, a language designed by statisticians for statisticians is maybe not a very good thing because uh, imagine like a football stadium built by footballers for footballers. <laughs> right. <laughs> Doesn't really make sense. <laughs> Absolutely great uh, analogy. There, and, and this is one of the things that you like about F-sharp then because it was brought up by, um, you know, by a community of software developers. And so it has a lot of those you know, refined points? Is that what you would, a good way to characterize it? Yeah, it's a full programming language, uh, which doesn't apply to languages like MATLAB or R, because they were designed just for specific purposes. Mm. So whenever you get out of this quite narrow scope, it's very hard to do anything. So it's nice to have a background of a full big programming language. Right. And yeah. what's great in F sharp is that I can use R from F sharp very easily. Now, this is interesting. So, and you would probably use R from F sharp when you have an, a library that was written in R or something that has been already done in R that might not be in F sharp. Is that pretty much why, why you would use it? Yeah, that's correct. Because when you are using any library, when you are analyzing real world data, uh, there's quite a lot of glue code that you need to write to pre-process your data to get that into the right format to use the library. Mm -hmm. And that's much, much easier in F-sharp than in R. So if I can just call the library from F-sharp and I don't have to actually switch environments, that makes the whole process much easier. Sure. And, and I imagine having the goodness of the .NET framework underneath you is uh, just an incredible luxury. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't get that in R. Sure. But using these uh, interfaces or type providers, you could still use the statistical strength of R, and uh, but you get to program with F-sharp to do it. 
Yes, exactly. With type providers, I'm using the R provider quite a lot. Mm. You get uh, full access to R and you even get IntelliSense in there. So it's uh, almost seamless. Mm. Wow. So a nice way to code in R. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. That's really interesting. Yeah, you get all the good bits from R and all the good bits from uh, F Sharp or .NET in general. Yeah, and I think one of the things that brought me into uh, the early languages, you know, the Visual Basic Microsoft language, was the amount of code that was out there existing already. And that makes a big difference, especially when you're just starting out and picking a tool. You know, do, how much stuff am I going to have to reinvent versus how much stuff can I just plug in? And it's good to know that, you know, if you're, if you're doing F sharp and concerned about that, you can just sort of drop in these R libraries or R source code and it's just going to work. Yeah, exactly. Because in F sharp, there is not much machine learning or statistical libraries yet. Uh, so it's great to be able to use anything that exists in R already. Because there's almost everything in R. Mm -hmm. And yet working in R by itself is constraining. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a statistical language. It's not language to do normal programming. Right. And so another great thing in F Sharp is that you can use type providers to access any data, basically. Right. You yeah. can load in CSV files. You can load in JSON files. And it gives you IntelliSense and type checking on everything, yeah. which you don't get in R. Do you do you run into issues with R where you get get wrong results because of of type checking problems and that sort of thing? Like you can fool yourself. Well, all the time. That's really so interesting. recently. For example, I was uh, trying to change a program written by someone else in R. And I found it really, really painful because they called all the variables using just single letters. Right. I, X. And <laughs> it hey. wasn't really clear what's a matrix, what's a data frame, what's a variable, what's a list. Oh, man. And it's just a nightmare to be going through a code like this and trying to find out what's happening on each line. I blame the teachers. <laughs> I blame the professors. I mean, you know, seriously, if you've been taking a statistics course and then it's time to write a program, you know, they obviously their forte is statistics, not programming. And so the variables become A, B, C, N, I, yeah. whatever. And uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Write only yeah, software. I know, I know people who studied just mathematics or statistics and they didn't have any lectures on programming at all. Right. Which means when they wanted to write their first program, it was quite difficult for them because they never uh, went through like, basic concepts like a uh, for loop, for example, even. Actually, yeah. writing the first program is easy. The editing the first program. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, going back to your first program and trying oh, to wow. determine what's A, what's B, what's C. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sim these are simple mistakes to get into. How how did you end up over here exactly in the statistic? Like, obviously, you've taken a lot of stats classes along the way. Is that because you wanted to get into AI that stats was important to it? Yeah, that's basically the reason. Because in modern AI and modern machine learning, you need to know quite a lot of statistics and mathematics. And 
yeah, I did take quite a lot of statistics and mathematics classes during, even during my undergrad in computer right. science. And then well, I realized that I really need to know that to be able to progress more into machine learning. So I went on to do a degree in computational statistics. And maybe part of this is that artificial intelligence has got such a loaded set of terminology. I think every mm. time you say that, people start thinking about t- artificial consciousness. But you're <laughs> yeah. not doing, you're not trying to create a being here, right? You're just trying no, to analyze no. data. I think, I think the term artificial intelligence evolved quite a bit uh, over the past few years. Or devolved, depending on your point yeah. of view. <laughs> it depends. Well, I think the term artificial intelligence was used a lot during the 90s. Yeah. But after that, people started using uh, more like machine learning to talk about more data mining aspects of right. artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I've heard it described is artificial intelligence is any technology we haven't quite figured out yet. And once we have <laughs> it figured out, then we give it a new name. You know, one time AI was... Uh, was visualization, like being able to see. Yeah, yeah. And then we spun that off. Now we call that computational visualization and, and, and so forth. <laughs> Tomorrow we'll call it legacy code. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's as long as it's vague, we'll call it AI. But machine learning spun off because once we got resi- reliable results from it and we knew what we yeah. were doing here, analyze large blocks of data, that yeah, makes sense Yeah, we can call it a different name. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very nice analogy, actually. Yeah, I think it works for me. It's like AI is stuff we don't quite understand yet. Yeah, that works. Because back in the 60s, AI was things like playing chess. Yeah. And people are saying, oh, when we build a machine that will be able to play chess, we will have AI. But right now we do have machines that play chess and they are better than humans. But still, it's not artificial intelligence. And they still get hit crossing the street. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Yeah, we did th- that's the point, right, is we keep carving off these other pieces. So, I mean, you've really drilled into the side of machine learning now and using these algorithms to help sift through massive amounts of, of cancer research. Where's your data coming from? Well, my data comes from like, cancer research right now. Like people are analyzing what genes are being active in cells. Right. When they actually take a tumor sample and then analyze it and look at genes, look at proteins that are there. And you can actually use this information to distinguish different cancer subtypes. Oh, interesting. So the ultimate goal with this is personalized medicine. When a person comes to a doctor, they take a sample and then they analyze it and they will be able to specifically tell that this patient has this and this subtype. Because, for example, with cancer, there are so many types that right. have different mortality, different risks. So it's very, very important to get the specific type of the person of the cancer that a person has it's, to be yeah, able to target it effectively. It's not enough to just say cancer, and then it's not even enough to say cancer of a given organ. But then, what particular type of of cancer is going on in that organ? Yeah, exactly. For example, I read about some research in thyroid cancer in Japan, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are routinely screening the whole population. And they found out that uh, mortality is the same over the past 30 years. But the number of uh, cases that they found is getting higher and higher. And that's just because they are screening the whole population 
but they are finding these cancers that are not actually harmful in any way. Right. You can have a tumor that's just sitting there and doing nothing. It's not spreading. It's not growing. So you don't actually have to treat that. But in, if yeah, they find it during screening, they will tr start to treat that. And uh, it's basically just harming the patient. The treatment's harming the patient. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, we're getting so you're getting so good at detecting stuff now. You're finding stuff that isn't actually harmful, but but tre the treatment is. I mean, every cancer treatment's pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, yeah. And if they find a tumor that wouldn't be harmful for you in the next thirty years, you yeah. don't want to go through the treatment that will harm you very, very much right now. So it's very important to find the specific subtypes of cancer. Right. And actually understand the risks around them. But then yeah. is this a is this a lot of new data coming out or is this just piles of data we've got but never been able to analyze? Well, the technology is emerging right now. Right. We are getting more and more data that are better and better. Uh, for example, before the the human DNA project. Yes. It was very, very uh, expensive to analyze the genome. But yeah. right now it's getting cheaper and cheaper. So we are getting data for more and more patients. Because we've got the genetic material. It's just doing the analysis initially to, to actually look at it. And they say the first human genome was a billion dollars and it's only gone down from there. Now it's in the thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. So... In a few years, it might be really possible that uh, the doctors will analyze your genome when you come with some kind of disease. Yeah, I, th and I, think, I think that's almost inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> and it will get much, much cheaper yet. Hmm. And the genetics, are, are there specific genetics they look at inside of a tumor that's part of this equation too? Uh, yeah, well, the kind of data I'm analyzing is from tumor cells, how right. they are behaving. And that can tell me which type of cancer that is. But then okay. there is another type of information you can be looking at. There's other kinds of information to look at? Yeah, there are other types of data that we can analyze as well. Uh, for example, what genetic variations are correlated with certain types of cancer. Mm, right. So So the, the human genetics can make can make you more susceptible to certain kinds of, of cancers as well right i mean skin cancers are more prevalent on fair-skinned people yeah exactly you can get have some genetic vari variant that's correlated with certain subtypes of cancer mm -hmm. okay and for so example i guess you heard about angelina jolie having breast operations because yes, they like identified a genetic variation that bears a very very high risk of breast cancer hmm. So she decided it's actually better to get rid of the tissue uh, and not have the risk because wow. she had almost like a certainty that she will get the cancer. Right. And of course, she's a very wealthy person. So she had very extensive tests yes. uh, to be able to figure this out in advance. But it's still a hell of a thing to say, I'm going to go under the knife, even though I'm not sick, at the because I'm afraid of the illness I could get in the future. Hmm. Yes, yes. But there are not many genes that would be this strongly correlated with a right. certain disease. So right now we are getting some variants that have, for example, like 
20% increase in probability that you will get a certain type of cancer. But uh, the 20% increase in probability is uh, might be a lot, might not be, because for right. example, if just 1% of the people get this cancer, you have zero point, uh, you have 1% risk of getting the cancer. Right. And 20% increase is just 1.2% risk. Right. Which is well, not very much. Well, and this is where you get into the the average person has problems with stats. Well, this is the whole stink <laughs> around twenty three and Me, right? Right. Twenty three and Me was public had this medical correlation data, which they're still all very low probability, but it freaked people out so much they actually got the FDA involved, and now they can't give that information to you anymore. I'm, if you're in the U.S., yeah. And by freaked people out, I'm I think that was uh, you know a political kind of thing. Yeah, but, I think uh, it's, it's very shame. hard to report uh, probabilities to people that yeah. are not familiar with that. Yeah, that's when it comes down to. I hate to interrupt this really grave and important conversation, <laughs> but Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to analyze the results of a chi-square goodness of fit test of the humor level of all my .NET Rocks jokes against how funny <laughs> I think they are. <laughs> and the result is, hang on. Oh, the empty set. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was a good one, my friend. <laughs> An empty set. When you can make a statistician laugh. Yeah, you said something right. <laughs> okay, it's coming back here. No, 1%. 1%. Uh, there you go. <laughs> you have some statistically relevant data. <laughs> It's actually time to give a Sync Fusion Essential Studio collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, is your big data strategy causing you headaches? Do you even have a big data strategy? Well, ditch the complicated configuration and jargon and pump up your development with the only easy-to-use big data solution for Windows. The SyncFusion Big Data Platform installs quickly and is packed with samples to get you up and running in 15 minutes or less. Check it out now at SyncFusion and start working with big data. And even if you aren't working with big data, you can take advantage of over 500 SyncFusion controls to help you build stunning applications. Or you can broaden your skill set with the free ebooks SyncFusion offers on over 40 topics. Download free trials and free ebooks at SyncFusion.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Fernando Viazali. Congratulations, Fernando. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Fernando. And he just won the SyncFusion Essential Studio. Big pile of awesome from uh, SyncFusion. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we love to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. You just missed last year. And uh, we also love to ask our guests... If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, Evelina Gavashova, what would you buy? Well, you were just talking about big data. Yeah. And actually, I was thinking about this question, and I would probably buy a server with one terabyte of RAM. More because memory. You, <laughs> yeah. Because if you have uh, such a big memory, then almost all your data can fit in there. And then most of the problems you have with big data go away. Yeah, that's not big data. That's just data. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is tricky to put that much RAM into a server. Well, but there are machines. They do like exist. That no question. Yeah, yeah. But I'm pretty sure you're going to blow your budget. <laughs> Richard, as an IT guy, you probably have your finger on the pulse of where we're going in terms of architecture of machines. Are we, yeah. We're, we're sort of headed there, aren't we, to just an all random access machine? The hard disk will sort of go away as we know it? Well, there's a few ways that we solve that too, right? Like the whole SSD movement is essentially using RAM, yeah. fixed storage yeah. that that is very, very fast. Um, there's sort of magic numbers. We did a show on Runaz about this. That one of the magic numbers is 768 gigs. So we we're talking about building uh, SQL servers. That's sort of the mat. That's sort of the most memory you can put in a SQL server before things get really complicated. You're talking about RAM. RAM. Okay. So because SQL Server will naturally pull tables of data into memory if it has the memory to use them, right? The correct amount of memory for SQL Server is always more. More. Yes. <laughs> more is correct. Uh, but it's easier to architect that with SSDs when you get above, when you get up to those kinds of numbers. Now, that being said, when you're talking about statistical analysis and things like, yeah, maybe it wouldn't be as tough to, to manage more memory. The problem is that you get into these very high density DIMMs, the 64 gig DIMMs, and they're expensive. So a terabyte of RAM, quickly the $5,000 is left in the in the wake. <laughs> Evelina, what do your data structures look like either in memory or on disk so that, you know, when, I'm, when I think of data, you know, we think relational data is your classic sort of, you know, .NET programmer understanding of data. And then we have NoSQL databases and just sort of uh, branching and trees and B trees and things like that. What, is, what, is, what do your data structures look like typically? Well, typically the sort of data I'm working with comes from the biologists who just put it into a CSV file. So normally it's just tables and tables of values. I see. And Unrelated that's basically values, all right? right now. Yeah. Well, this can be, for example, gene expression for all genes in a human genome. Got it. So it's quite a big table, but uh, it doesn't have any structure to it. I see. A lot of flat data. Yes. Yeah. Or I can have time series data. And what's that? Uh, but still, it's ultimately just a table of data where, for example, I was working with some data on tuberculosis and the bacteria that causes tuberculosis, the mycobacterium tuberculosis. Uh, a group of scientists were looking at how it behaves under starvation because it can go into a sort of latent state where right. it doesn't do anything for years. Hmm. And wow. after years, it can, again, revive itself and become infections again. So that's a big problem with tuberculosis, and they were looking at these uh, genes in this uh, bacteria, and they were watching it over the course of one year. And they were looking at what genes are being active in the cells. And they were taking measurements every couple of days, every couple of weeks. So that's the sort of data I'm working with. Hmm. Yeah, and tuberculosis is one of those diseases that just doesn't seem to go away. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is they stay in the latent state and yeah, they can become infective again. And if people have low immunity, uh, for example, HIV patients, 
that's a very big problem because then the bacteria becomes life again and it can cause big problems. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, we could dive into the biology of this thing about <laughs> the way that stuff cysts up. Like, you see the same problem with botulin cysts, but that's not actually the ultimate goal here. Just being able to use the data, analyze the data to, to understand the behavior. I mean, yeah. Well, I think my problem right now is not big data, but big models for the data. Right. Ah. Because my data are not that big, actually. They can fit into the memory just fine without one terabyte server. But what, what I'm building that? quite complicated models for the data. And to work with that... When you say a complicated model, give us an example. Well, for example, right now I'm working on models to identify subtypes of cancer. So I'm working in a probabilistic framework. Mm -hmm which means I create a model for like latent subtypes of cancer and how they behave and what values they have. And I have to model this thing. It gets quite big for real data, for real models. And I, I'm using approximate methods to estimate probabilities. Mm. And these models are very, very complicated. And I can't hold the whole thing in the memory quite often. Because uh, I'm using sampling approaches that take, for example, one million of samples of probabilities. And, and you're associating with so many other elements. There's a geometric progression here, right? As long as it's only two vectors, it's fine. But as soon as it's six vectors, it's trillions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, the model can blow up quite quickly. So you need all that RAM just for your model. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even have big data. <laughs> <laughs> if you had big data, you'd really have a problem. Yeah, yeah. But then I think that people who really have big data, they have to use, well, most of the time they have to use quite simple models to analyze them. Now, you, right. You say you want a big, big uh, server. Have you used cloud computing at all? Uh, yeah, well, I played uh, with the Amazon Cloud for some time. I haven't played with Azure yet very much. But the problem with my data is that it's data about patients. So yeah. ultimately, uh, well, uh, let's say my department doesn't allow using cloud computing because we are working with confidential data. We hear this so, story over and over again on this show. You know, there's the big thing that is holding people back from jumping on yeah. the cloud is they're just not allowed to use it. Yeah, exactly. And, well, I guess in medicine, that's a much bigger problem because you have data about actual people, about patients. Yeah, personally and, identifiable information. Yeah, exactly. So you just don't want to upload that into some cloud that can get hacked or sure. people can actually identify the people from that. Yeah, I guess the question is, how do you take the personally identifiable information out of the genetic data you've collected? Yeah, I, that's true. I mean, when you're looking at big sets of data and big models and things, you're not really concerned about a single person's identity, are you? You're really concerned about the data. But can, it, yeah, can it be cleaned yeah. of uh, all of that stuff or replaced with tokens or some other relative uh some other rel relative number or or item or token that points to something local 
so that it could be correlated locally if we wanted to, but without that original data, it means nothing. Well, it's a difficult problem. Well, for me, I'm not that concerned with uh, this type of pr problem because my data are not identifiable. I just right. have the genetic information. And right now I'm working with data on the tumors. So you can't really identify the person back from that. Would going to the cloud buy you anything, really? I mean, you have the computing power you need locally? Well, I'm working in my department and we have some big servers that we can use. Uh, and we even have our own cluster that we can use. So I'm not that uh, tempted to go into a cloud. Got it. Another thing is that our departmental policy doesn't allow us to use clouds. Right. Are you actually having compute problems? Does it take a long time? Yeah, all the time. As I but mentioned, how long, I have, you, how long are you doing a compute for? Well, it depends on uh, what model I am trying to solve at the moment. Right. But it can be anything because I'm doing simulations and they are not quick. So I can run something for over the weekend, over a week. Wow. So yeah. days of computing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like programming in the 70s. <laughs> 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 Except we were just trying to say hello world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess bigger computing power would help, but only so much. What about local distributed computing? You know, so you've got maybe not one big cluster of big powerful servers, but racks and racks of less powerful machines that are each doing a piece of your analysis? It's still part of the reason, uh, well, it's still active research, but some of my models are very, very hard to parallelize. Got it. Because if you have a model where something depends on everything else, you can't really parallelize oh, something of course. like that. Yeah, if so, every one of those... Um, satellites has to have access to the entire data set what's the point yeah yeah so quite a lot of people are working on algorithms that would allow to parallelize models like this so i would like to use them but i haven't yet because it's again quite complex to actually adapt these algorithms for my specific problems but in the meantime you just want a big honking server <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can relate. Well. Yep. <laughs> more compute power is always interesting and and just, you know, you could explore more and more stuff this way. Right. I I got to imagine there's no shortage of uh of models that you want to run. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, more power. <laughs> yes, more That's power, what I please. Need. Yeah. Well, so, actually, I went to a machine learning conference last month, mm -hmm. and there was one person, I think, from Stanford who was saying that all graduate students in his lab got a one terabyte server. Wow. Good Lord. Yeah. That's a heck of a gift. And I think they are doing quite a lot of uh, network data analysis, like social networks. And when you can just load a huge network into your memory, then you can do anything. Yes. If you can get it in there, you can it'll compute faster. It's still, you know, mathematically complex what you're doing. That's going to take some time. Yeah. When you're testing your models, you use a much smaller set of data 
I imagine. Is that the process? You, you get a model and then you get some, a, a small data set and work over it so that it, it can happen in, you know, minutes rather than weeks? Well, the way I work is that when I develop my model, I'm using some simulated data that I actually understand, that I can interpret to see if my model is doing something reasonable. And after it works on simulated data, I can try to run it on some real-world data that I don't understand. And what's your testing methodology like? I mean, how do you know that it works or it doesn't work? Is it just pure mathematical formula? You know, if the result is the result that you expected when when you put in X, you get out Y, and yep, that's what we expected, therefore it's working? Well, that's actually a very complicated question because I'm working with random algorithms and random sampling. Ouch. Uh, when I can, can't even approximate my, or I can't really compute my probability distributions exactly, so I have yeah. to approximate them. And when you are debugging something like this, your model is basically giving you just random samples from a distribution. And to find out if the distribution you are computing this way is actually the distribution you want, it's not easy. No, I can't imagine it is. Yeah, so So there's even some research on how to write tests for this type of data. And yeah, you have to use statistical methods to compare your estimated distribution with the one you want to compute, or you can use your approximate sampling and compare it with uh, with uh, direct computation of the distribution. That's very, very expensive, but you can do it just to test the correctness of your sampler. Wow. It brings, <laughs> and I, yeah. I gotta bet you don't get clear yeses and clear noes. Right? It's all sort of middle of the road, well, it's kind of relevant. It's not that strong. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the problem. You always get <laughs> answers like this. Right. But then, uh, that's even the output of my model, for example. I can't say, well, it's like this. No, I will just say, oh, with some probability, it is like this. Yeah, I can't imagine how. I mean, that brings a whole new level of of uh, software development and testing to to what you're doing. Yeah. Well, but then even testing in my community is something that not many people actually do. Hmm. People are quite often satisfied with finding out that the model does something reasonable and they, right. they say, oh, it works. Interesting. So I think there are many bugs in statistical code that people just don't discover because the model is behaving somewhat reasonably. It's good enough. Yeah. It gives you results that make you happy. doesn't mean they're actually accurate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't that weird? Well, and then this is where you get into that whole scientific model of now you, you present your paper and other people try and duplicate your results, sort of run, go through the process, and then perhaps find errors. Yeah, that happens. It's just kind of embarrassing to find out that point rather than find it yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, that's but, why people should test their code, but it's uh, not trivial at all. But that brings us back to the difference between scientists and programmers, right? I mean, scientists, I mean, that's the process. That's what they do. You put something out there and you expect it, people to uh, to add to it or to, you know, augment it. 
or or change it based on their research and their results. You know, I mean, yeah, we're different. And pro- programmers, you know, <laughs> we're so different. <laughs> yeah, but the purpose in like scientific programming is not to implement a program that would run fast and that would be actually usable quite often. Uh, the purpose is just to provide some implementation of a model or of a proposed algorithm. Right. And the assumption is that if someone will want to use it, they might rewrite it or they might, right. might use the example implementation, but quite often it's not very usable in practice. And I know that quite a lot of companies who do R&D they actually have scientists uh, creating the models or the algorithms and then a group of software engineers implementing that. Right. And that's quite a reasonable solution, I guess, because the job of the researcher is not to be able to write a good implementation of a program. Different world. <laughs> it really is. Now you're still working on your PhD, or is it yeah, PhDs more than one? Uh, my first PhD. I'm not planning a second one. <laughs> we'll ask you after you get it. <laughs> so where are you in the process now? Well, right now I'm starting to write up, so I'm getting into the more stressful phase of doing a PhD. Can can you talk about what your PhD is about? I mean, this is supposed to be a contribution to the body of knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. So I hope I contributed to the knowledge somehow. And well, the ultimate topic of my PhD is uh, integrative models for genomic data. Because in genomics, people are collecting, collecting all sorts of data on what genes are doing in cells, what proteins are being produced in there, what genes are silenced in cells. Right. And the purpose of my work is to integrate this data together to get sort of bigger picture. Make it more efficient. Yeah. Sounds like a because- Nobel Prize in the making if you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are many people working on similar problems, so I'm not sure if my approach is the best one, but it gives me quite a lot of insight into uh, how my model uh, models the reality. Because some models can, can be quite ad hoc, where they just analyze the data and give you a result. But uh, with probabilistic approach that I'm using, I can actually look and interpret the results, I can say, well, this result holds with this and this probability, for example. Right. Yep. This is not going to be an easy thing. Mm. <laughs> what did, did you do a master's thesis as well? Oh, yes. Well, no. the way PhDs work in Europe is that you usually do a master's somewhere else first. Right. So I did my master's at UCL. And it was in pure statistics and machine learning. And there I started looking at bioinformatics and I did my master thesis in developing regression methods to find transcription factors uh, from gene expression data. So that's where I first started collaborating with biologists. And, and, and often, I and often on, I find that master thesis sort of inform the PhD thesis going forward. 
for me, it's uh, just introduced me into the area of bioinformatics. Right. Because then I went to a completely different place to work with completely different people on different type of problem. Mm. But still informatics. I mean, it's it's different. It's a different problem space, but certainly it's the same mechanism. So, Evelina, in your career, what is the holy grail? What would you like to discover or contribute? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess for me, the ultimate goal would be to, when I'm analyzing biological data, the ultimate goal would be to show the results to the biologists and they would say, oh, uh, this is a new thing. And if they go back and test it, they would find out that it actually holds in practice. Yeah. So to discover something that's not trivial and that's not obvious from normal observation Mm. and to have it proved in practice, that would be the ultimate goal for me. What sounds wonderful. Well, uh, good luck, and thank you for all your work and and talking to us this hour. It's been enlightening. Yeah, thank you. It was a nice talk, nice chat. Excellent. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a talk.